justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta Good evening and welcome to the season finale of Justify. We were forced to stop at 11 episodes in season 1 because of the onset of the pandemic and we thought why not make a thing of it. So here's the 11th and the final episode of season 2 of Justify and this one is on legal education in India. Why an episode on legal education you might ask. You may notice the regularity with which the Supreme Court features on the front pages of our newspapers. In a vast majority of cases, it's not because the court has laid down a proposition of law, but rather because it's made a passing observation. Lawyers, the best and brightest of them, often take up up to ten matters every single day in court. No wonder not much good law gets laid down, and instead we have observations and feelings passing as judicial orders quite frequently. Law journals in India are rarely of world standard. There is very little academic scholarship that happens in India that is not. meant for getting likes on facebook or twitter yet despite this according to estimates there are 1.5 lakh graduates from law schools every year what are they studying does the education imparted to them have a bearing on the law that gets laid down a few decades hence and what can a radically reconceptualized legal curriculum and pedagogy look like to discuss these i have assistant professor of law at the national law school bangalore and my good friend rag yadav rag Welcome to Justify. Thanks, Orgo, for having me. So, Rag, tell me, you've thought about legal education quite a bit, and now, of course, you're teaching law at NLS. What's your general view on the state of legal education in India today? So, I think legal education in India today is a very exciting field because it's undergoing a transformation. So, just to give a bit of a you know historical background to where we are today. um the first generation of the le- reforms in legal education uh started in 1987 uh with professor madhav menon um who started the national law school where i teach and the pioneering idea that he seeded into uh the education atmosphere at the time was that law is not just a technical enterprise it's not just about producing people who go into court but it's about a more multidisciplinary education where we look at sociology we look at political science and we really try and understand indian society at large before we become lawyers who go to court or go to law firms and i think that was the initial thought behind uh, the setting up of the national law schools and why i think legal education today is in transformation and is in becoming very exciting is because we are really trying to make legal education true to its stated purpose we are really now trying to make uh, the national law school and indian law schools more broadly respond to the context of indian society uh, answer the problems that our polity is throwing up and really prepare individual students to participate in the public sphere and to promote the civic and public good i'm delighted to hear that this is going on rag but just playing devil's advocate who is we because uh, i've been to a few national law schools recently of course like you i have studied at at nls and uh, while there's some great students and great faculty who are doing good work i don't see any transformation really 
So I think that's a fair point. We are in a process of transformation. So there is obviously a lot uh, that remains to be done. Who is this we? I'm, I'm curious. So at the National Law School, I think definitely uh, there is a very uh, strong agenda to take the interdisciplinarity seriously. So uh, we're definitely trying lots of experiments here and perhaps we can talk about that. But to answer that question uh, more seriously, there is a problem, um, I think, about the lack of progress- progressivism in legal education. So let me just focus on that for a bit. I think there are two ways in which we can look at legal education, right? So one way is where we see legal education as a kind of professional uh, training uh, where we produce lawyers who then take the bar exam and then they go and practice in court or they go to law firms or they do whatever else uh, that lawyers do. The second way of looking at legal education, which I think has now become predominant or at least is on the rise, is of seeing law graduates as individuals, you know, in the classic Platonian sense, as people who think about justice and injustice in public spaces, who shape the public sphere. And I think even if you look at the recent portfolios that law graduates are occupying, they've moved away from classic law practice. Vidhi is a great example of that. You now have law graduates in entrepreneurship. You have law graduates going into industry. You have law graduates part in, uh, you know, activist schools. So I think that conceptualization of legal education has changed. And perhaps we are behind the curve a little bit, but definitely the institution and the educators are also realizing that they must realign legal education to fit that need that the student population has for a more broad-based education. But don't you think that perhaps the examples that you cited are a testament to what Madhav Menon's vision was. Because you remember when we went into law school, right at the beginning, we were told that lawyers are social engineers and that we are not just meant to resolve disputes in court or assist in transactions, but have a positive impact on society. So why could I not argue that the kinds of things that you mentioned that lawyers are doing that are not traditional litigation and law firm practice are the manifestation of an older vision rather than a product of some kind of transformation which frankly is still in the work. So I don't think that would be an unfair assessment to make. No, I think personally my opinion, although I'm uh, still battling with this myself, is that the National Law School was set up at a very interesting time in 1987, right on the cusp of liberalization. And so when the first few batches of the National Law School and other law schools, which were set up soon afterwards, NALSAR and UGS came about, they came up in an India that was rapidly changing where the market was sucking up lots of lawyers. And so in some sense, the social engineering aspect of the law uh, took a backseat. It was there on the books. It's there in Section 4 of the National Law School Act, if uh, any of your listeners are interested. But I think in practice, uh, it didn't play out. The reason why I think the transformation is happening now is because we have matured as institutions. And I think we've also broadly matured as a democracy. And given that maturity, we are now realizing that the educational atmosphere at the law school is not just about providing technical skills, but is about providing these broader skills. And if you look at, for example, the national education policy that was uh, in the news recently, if you look at the way you know institutions like the Jindal Global Law School, Kriya University, Ashoka University have you know, really mushroomed, what all of this is telling us is that there is a thirst for liberal arts education. There is a thirst for uh, thinking, uh, critical thinking, and for character building beyond simply subject matter-based education. 
So in some sense, this was enshrined in the original vision of Dr. Menon, which is, I think, a testament to uh, how far he saw into the future. But I think a lot of that work and a lot of the details have still to be filled in. And that is something where we are really uh, making some inroads now. So I guess what you're essentially saying is that education, legal education is playing catch up with the way in which lawyers themselves are beginning to see themselves, that they are not just black letter lawyers, but they're doing a range of things. So legal education is playing catch up. But here's a question that when we tend to think of legal education and the conversation so far for the last few minutes has also been about the very top of this pyramid, that is a few national law schools, which we must always remain cognizant of the fact that they are a small elite set of institutions which graduate about two to 3,000, my numbers may be a little off, but they're somewhere there, uh, two to 3,000 students every year. But if we do look at the numbers in the country, there are 1.5 lakh students who graduate from law schools every year, and there are about 1,500 law colleges. So when we are thinking about this process of change, how do we start grappling with the fact that what you're talking about is a few elite schools which require a certain kind of, or perhaps are beginning to see a certain kind of transformation, but then there is this large number which is really what makes up the legal practice and the understanding of law in the public narrative today. How do we think about this vast majority? So I think that's a very, very important question. Um, and so let me answer that in a couple of parts. Um, I'm going to just give you some facts and figures historically to tell you how we got here and how this problem is structured. And then I'll offer some thoughts about what I think is the way forward. So if we go back to the very founding of India, in uh, the early 1950s, Dr. Radhakrishnan um, had lamented of the dismal state of legal education in India. He had spoken of falling uh, legal uh, standards in our law schools. He complained that our law schools don't occupy a place of high esteem either within India or internationally. Eight years later, in 1958, uh, M.C. Setalvad, uh, the famous jurist who headed the 14th Law Commission, similarly noted that the state of legal education in the country in the mass was something that left a lot to be desired. Now, this was a problem that was recognized within the first decade of our republic. So it's not a problem that's new. It's not something that has sprung upon us recently. Now, when these two reports came out, the response of uh, Parliament's response was to pass the uh, Advocates Act in 1961, under which the Bar Council of India ha has a broad mandate to regulate legal education in the country. It prescribes standards, it conducts inspections of newly opened law schools to make sure that they meet minimum standards. Now, what is very interesting, and this is, I think, a provocative fact, is that the mushrooming of law schools that you referred to, the 1.5 lakh students, etc., started when the Advocates Act was passed. And we have a lot of data backing this up. So that's a very interesting uh, you know, issue that the very response or institution that was supposed to stem uh, the decline in, in standards in legal education actually ended up having the opposite effect. And this story has now gone on from 1961 till today. So the first comment I'll make about this, and uh, you know, I won't mince my words, is about whether the Bar Council of India has been doing its job and whether the Bar Council of India is competent um, to, uh, to, to regulate legal education and what role it has to play. 
So that's one broad issue I want to highlight. But the question that you asked about, you know, elite versus mass law schools is, I think, a very real one. In the mass, there are two kinds of law schools. You have fake degree shops, right? These are institutions that are not legitimate. These are institutions that, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has spoken about on multiple occasions as places that need to be uh, stopped, uh, they need to be shut down. But then you also have a large number of institutions which are legitimate, which are facing capacity issues, which don't have enough teachers, which don't have enough uh, introduction to pedagogy and curriculum development. And I think the way forward for us is for established institutions and for the regulator to create some kind of a mentoring process, some kind of scaffolding where these institutions can be introduced to uh, progressive methods of teaching, of curriculum development, of pedagogy, where newer financial structures can be created so that uh, they can, can create and maintain good infrastructure. So I think focusing on these institutions requires a lot of attention, both from the public and the private domain. And this is where the real responsibility of the regulator, whether it's the Bar Council of India, I don't think it's... Uh, it's an issue that the Bar Council has to be done away with, but the question is about how do they update themselves to uh, meet these new realities? How should the Bar Council respond to this challenge? And this is where I think their real world lies. So, so that spend, I think. Let's spend a couple of minutes uh, discussing these sort of fairly interesting points of view that you have. Uh, first, on the Bar Council. Now, as you rightly said, maybe for generation one, when you wanted lawyers who were just competent black letter lawyers who could interpret and understand the law and resolve disputes. Maybe the Bar Council of India was the right place, the right body to, to regulate them. But given this new reality that you've laid out of lawyers doing a whole range of things and, and in some sense expected to be problem solvers generally, not just necessarily dealing with the law, what is the kind of role that you think the Bar Council of India ought to have, number one. And number two, given the fact that there are all these fake degree shops and there is all these there are problems of standards, who else do you think is needed, if at all anyone else is needed, to play that role to ensure that we have the kinds of legal educational institutions that are going to churn out the kinds of legal professionals we want? Um, so I think that's really the heart of the issue. And there is no simple or easy answer. But I think uh, there are three clear stakeholders who are involved in this process. I think the Bar Council is a very important stakeholder because it represents the Bar and it uh, represents the lawyers of the country. The second stakeholder are, are, I think, existing legal academic institutions like the National Law Schools and other institutions themselves. And the third um, set of, uh, the third stakeholder, I think, is the University Grants Commission, uh, because it's the single window regulator for all matters of higher education in India. Now, what is to be done to stem this problem of fake law schools, um, I think, is we need better inspection standards. We need greater transparency in the way that uh, they are granted recognition by the Bar Council of India. So that, I think, is actually a clear fix. Um, the problem really is not in identifying standards, but in clear and effective implementation. I think that's a very interesting point, Rag, because it, it does say something about the fact that we need a longer conversation about the appropriate role of the Bar Council of India. Clearly, it is a stakeholder. But at the same time, a lot of diminution of quality has happened under its watch. So we need to think about what role 
if any at all, the Bar Council of India ought to play in granting recognition and performing inspection of these institutions. And I also note that the HECI bill, which seeks to transform education in India, keeps legal education out of its remit. So that's a longer conversation about Bar Council versus HECI. But that segues nicely into perhaps a, an issue of conceptualization, which is that legal education has always been conceptualized as somehow distinct. And the law schools, the specialized national law schools, have furthered this trend that there is seemingly an ivory tower within which legal education can be imparted. This, of course, is, is very different from the way in which law faculties operated, which were law faculties in established universities. So where do you stand on this question of whether we need to have specialized law schools vis-a-vis -vis having law faculties in established universities? So I think um, this is a question that we are grappling with after the national education policy at National Law School as well. And my opinion is that in the natural progression of things, these single stream institutions, the you know law schools need to operate in a broader university framework. Um, and I say this for two reasons. One, from the institution's perspective, the economies of scale that one can achieve if you have uh, combined faculty pools is something that you can't replicate if you're going to be a single law school. So as of today, if I teach history or political science or sociology, I'm not going to come to a, a, a law school where I'm possibly going to be removed from my community. I'll possibly go to a larger university where I have a greater community and a broader peer group. So that's from the institution side. From the student side, and this is something that I think uh, you know I have personally benefited from, the learning experience of being in a university, of speaking with, interacting with people from other disciplines, um, is something that really operates to give you a holistic education. And you're not, uh, which is something I think all graduates of uh, the five-year law school uh, feel, that you're not cloistered in a small place with uh, you know, 500 of uh, 500 other law students or lawyers. That did, that did have its advantages. <laughs> well, Possibly. Um, I won't comment on that. So I think it will definitely help. Uh, it's a breath of fresh air, uh, the kind of interactions you have. If it opens out into a broader university framework, that is definitely preferable. In fact, the national education policy offers two clear pathways for this. So the first is where it says single stream education uh, institutions have to broaden out and become uh, multi-stream institutions themselves. That may be slightly problematic because for a single stream institution to you know, get more land, build up more faculty, uh, that's quite a difficult task. What makes perhaps easier is to have a clustering of universities. So in India, after independence, for I think very good pragmatic reasons, we decided that we're going to have single stream institutions, you know, NLSs for law, we're going to have you know, AIMS for medicine, IITs for tech, IIMs for management, et cetera, et cetera. And now I think in the progressive development of these institutions, we've all started feeling that it's time to come together and create some kind of you know, synergies between us so that we can offer a more holistic educational experience. So I think that's definitely the trend in the future. And in the next five to 10 years, I think that is going to be the most uh, important challenge that uh, legal education faces. How do we speak to other institutions and create some kind of common platform? Yeah, I think that speaks uh, speaks well to the kind of transformation that you were talking about earlier, that if legal education is transforming or the legal law itself is transforming from being 
just a discipline to actually being more a way of thinking about things and lawyers are doing a whole range of professional activity, then legal education might change in this way that work with various other institutions to form these clusters that can make more holistic lawyers. But holistic lawyers is also a function of the curriculum. So let's change track a little bit and, and jump to the curriculum. Now here, as a law student who has dabbled in teaching law and research, I research on law every day, thinking back to my time in law school, I feel that there was one thing that strikes me as, as, as pretty curious till this date, that often when we think about starting research on a particular subject, we start by saying, what are the best practices in the UK or the US? And even when we are writing one of our 60 projects that we had to write in the National Law School, there's inevitably always a chapter called International Best Practices. Now, there's something about our way of thinking about law that is essentially derivative, that we are not thinking originally, that we are not thinking about problems that the law has to solve in India today. And this is something that seems to primarily draw from the curriculum, the fact that our legal systems are heavily inspired by the British, but also the, 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 the sort of hangover that we have, that even in, in areas of law which are new and have nothing to do with the British or very little to do with the British, like the constitution, we are still looking at matters in a non-original fashion. So how do we think about a transformed curriculum in this transformed legal education that you're building? Okay, so that's a very difficult question. So I'm going to try my best to unpack it. This is something I face in my uh, teaching practices daily, um, which is that very personally, I am based in India. My students are based in India. Uh, our campus is in one corner of Bangalore. And yet it seems that a lot of the things that we're reading in class, uh, a lot of the research that we are exposed to, was written in a very far away removed context. They're fantastic pieces. Uh, you know, I'm a great admirer of the common law, of the continental tradition, of the tradition in the US. But you do feel this sense that you wish that there were, you know, better sources written by Indians for Indians. So that is definitely a problem that we all face today. Now, I think in your question lies part of the answer, which is the fact that this is a process of decolonization. A lot of our traditional uh, curricula, etc., are adopted from the British. Uh, you know, we are still Macaulay's Putras in, in a large way. So the way forward, I think, is in identifying and being self-aware that we need to develop Indian sources. This is happening more and more now. You know, you see Indian students and young academics coming back to uh, law schools in India. They're generating Indian material. Vidhi is a great example of that. You have a number of great people who are generating original research, which is sensitive to the Indian context, to Indian realities. So that, I think, is a slow process of developing capacity within India, which uh, we are going through. Um, the second Sorry, thing... Raga, I'm going to interrupt you there. But here's my question. Does it have to be this slow? Because when we are looking at redesigning curricula and assuming that we had some kind of clean slate, I'm assuming that we would do things very differently in a way in which we can make a radical break from the past. Of course, organically, this will happen. And decolonization is happening organically 
and in many different ways as in i i guess as, as i was discussing with someone the fact that the supreme court of india often tends to think of its role as the role of a mediator which sometimes strikes us as strange may be a part of that decolonization maybe that's the kind of supreme court that we need uh, but having said that do you think that there is a possibility when redesigning a curriculum that we can make a break from the past so that this process doesn't necessarily have to be slow because in my view every day that it this remains is a day that's lost for legal education in india i definitely think it's possible it can be done much uh, you know with much more energy and attention than it is being done right now there are promising signs now because like i said you have unlike what was the case 10 or 15 years ago it's not a foregone option that if someone can go and teach in a harvard or an oxford or a yale that they will go there a lot of people are choosing to be in india right so we're developing this kind of intellectual atmosphere we're developing these centers we're developing a uh, a sort of research uh, agenda within law schools and that's attracting a lot of great people so you mentioned the constitution we have a number of young great constitutional authors who are now coming out who have developed original material um we have much greater writing on uh, some of the founding fathers on dr ambedkar and his vision of the constitution so i think that process is definitely happening it's slow it's laborious but you're right uh, it it can be faster but i think we're definitely on the right track one thing that i think will really quicken this up and this is i think just a you know a basic issue is about funding so if we are to you know uh, walk the talk i think the indian education landscape is severely underfunded and that really drives away great minds so if you want great minds who are going to do this reconceptualization who are going to usher in this new de- you know indian age who are going to decolonize indian institutions then you have to provide adequate funding whether it's public or it's private so that i think is a you know a, a, an issue that we have to grapple with and the moment we make it worth people's while then we will see great talent coming into into the fray and then obviously the field is going to progress so let's focus on that a little bit because you said whether public or private and that's sort of a really begging the question because uh, of course there is a sentiment that uh, anything good in india now necessarily has to be private and we we certainly see that in in education certainly in the in what you described as those transformed institutions right at the beginning whether it be an ashoka kriya or a jindal as in these are all private institutions that are thinking about doing things differently but you yourself i'm sure you had a choice of institutions that you could have potentially gone back to after coming back from abroad but you chose to go back to a public institution so when you're talking about these funding issues how do you see this role of public versus private or public and private so i think because this is such a large field um, my own opinion is that there is enough space for both public and private funding in a public institution you obviously have equity concerns and so you know you can't charge too much fees so in that case our funding comes from either uh, government funding or from any other uh, you know an, uh, events that we uh, run but i think what is now happening very much is that private funding is coming into legal education now traditionally in india we did not enjoy we thought that you know the supreme court has said uh, that uh, education isn't commerce that you can't run it as a for profit and so we were generally quite reticent in accepting uh, private funding in education now that i think has uh, really changed and that i think is for uh, is a, is a good step 
I completely agree with you that we do need both public and private. I think there are many questions to be asked there about what kind of public institutions we want and how private institutions can also be oriented towards the public good because there could be a sense that there is this model where you're charging high fees and then giving five scholarships that is equity but it's not. So I think it's uh, there are some questions there which need to be answered. But let me round off with some questions on pedagogy. Now, rather than get into some theoretical discussion on pedagogy, because whenever I hear the word, I tend to get a little bored. But, uh, but you come back to college and you're now teaching legal method. And you were, of course, taught legal method maybe about, I don't know, a decade ago. How are you doing things differently? So, I mean, the first challenge is that I'm uh, teaching during a pandemic. So that definitely throws up a lot of its challenges. But beyond that, I think the main change in pedagogy um, is focusing on smaller class sizes, focusing on greater interaction, focusing not on the lecture method, right? So there is this tendency for university professors to see themselves as sages on the stage, right? Where you sit and stand and lecture uh, to your students at large. That, I think, is not a method that is conducive in the law or in the humanities more broadly. So there is much greater focus on dialogue, on discussion, on interaction. Um, And the second thing, which I think is very important, is that we have to now start looking at self-facilitated learning. Right. So a majority of learning doesn't happen in the classroom. The classroom is a sort of... uh, you know, boost. It it gives you a bit of an introduction. It points you in the right direction. But a real university environment is where you can have a lot of decentralized ways of learning, smaller seminars, peer learning groups, uh, community visits, uh, uh, clinical uh, courses. And I think the focus, at least in my teaching, is trying to make it more interactive and trying to get the students to participate in a lot of these other activities rather than make the classroom the center of uh, the teaching and learning. So how do you do this? Because you are in a classroom with 80 people, I'm assuming. So how do you how do you do these smaller, more interactive sessions? So the first part is in my classes, for example, we have uh, lead discussants uh, who prepare the issue in, in detail in advance. And they lead the discussion. And through the Socratic method, I can try and investigate the issue in greater detail. So it's not me who is leading the discussion. It's not me who is lecturing them at length. They are, in fact, leading the discussion. And I try and facilitate that so that they can become uh, adept at at, uh, exploring the issue themselves. So that's one clear way. The second way is having tutorials, which I think is very important, which uh, is something that I borrowed from uh, the Oxford experience. Having small groups between two to uh, students between two to six, where you can actually focus on a piece of writing in great detail. You can go over the substance of the argument, the manner of presentation, and they can get individualized feedback. That I think really adds to the learning experience. Now, that's obviously a challenge because the general trend in universities seems to be to increase batch sizes. Um, but I think that is something that uh, is is a very important pedagogical tool. So I think we've got a funding issue there because obviously smaller class sizes is great, but it might require greater bits of investment. But at the same time, I think what you've laid out does seem like it holds out the promise for something better. But uh, we're coming to close to the end of this this conversation. And uh, what I wanted to ask you right at the end is actually that what you said in terms of changing the pedagogy also requires a change of mindset. Like the first stumbling block that I can think of to what you've just mentioned 
is the fact that there are five marks for attendance. Maybe we should do away with attendance, right? As in, if it is self-facilitated learning, I guess institutions have to tr start trusting students and students have to start trusting the institution. So how do we break this vicious cycle? That's number one. And number two is that if we are to move towards this mode of self-facilitated learning, then when do you see, and this is sort of if you had a crystal ball, when do you see something like that happening for legal education in India? So I'm very happy to announce that those uh, pernicious five marks for attendance have been done away with. So oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that is, that is clearly great news in the National Law School, Bangalore. Yes. So the five marks for attendance have been done away with. And if it were up to me, the attendance requirement uh, will be done away, should be done away with, at least in this part so of life. So the 75% attendance requirement remains, but the five marks have five been marks done away with. I think That's a start. That's a real start. Yeah, That's I think there should be a laissez-faire approach. If you enjoy the professor's class, you come. If you don't enjoy it, then don't come. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have to give the exam at the end. And if you're able to do that without coming to class, good for you. You can spend your time doing better things. So I think, I mean, a bit more seriously, I think definitely there has to be a change in mindset. I'm glad to announce that uh, we have just launched the NLS Faculty Pedagogy Discussion Forum, where we are now actively debating these issues, uh, where we are trying to, you know, uh, change that mindset. We're trying to experiment with newer pedagogical tools. In some ways, because it's the way the system has been running, uh, you know, it, it takes time to turn a large ship. But I think the way forward is very clear and students are demanding it. Um, you now have students have access to great content online. So there is this constant competition. Uh, you are being judged against some of the best faculties in the world. Courses from Harvard and MIT are freely available. So I think that uh, openness in the university uh, atmosphere is forcing all of us to think deeply about how to change that you know, these pedagogical frameworks. And I'm quite confident that, uh, you know, in, in the years to come, things will uh, the learning experience will not be the same as it was for many of us when we were in law school. Great. I think that's a, that's an optimistic note to end with. I think we are headed in the right direction uh, because Raag certainly is not a sage on the stage, but he has been very forthright with his views on Zoom today. So thanks very much, Raag, for joining me in this conversation. And uh, we hope for a brighter dawn for legal education in India and not just for the national law schools, but for the entirety of the legal education firmament. Thanks very much, Rav. Thanks, Orgo, for having me. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than clat. Last week's question was about a 1989 US Supreme Court ruling that had a profound effect on American law enforcement and rendered the 14th Amendment irrelevant when it came to deciding whether the police officer used excessive force? The answer is Graham versus Connor, uh, which up used the Fourth Amendment to come to its conclusion. And the winner is Ramya Shri DR. Ramya Shri, many congratulations. A gift voucher is coming your way. And since this is the season finale, we don't have a new clatter question. So you'll just have to wait for one next time. Thank you very much for joining me for this season of Justify. It was an exhilarating set of episodes, which I enjoyed very much, and I hope you did too. So till we meet for season three, which will be in the second half of this year, here's one of my favorite songs from Casablanca as time goes by. Thank you for listening. Adjourn.
You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.